The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. You can't say no to a double dog dare. This is Thursday, May 16th, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. First, thank you for your patience, understanding, and support during my rare time away from this studio. As some of you know by now, I was looking in on my aging parents in Kansas, and I'm pleased to say I left with much greater peace of mind for each of us. All is well. So, did anything interesting happen in the past two weeks? Of course it did, by the buckets full. I'll sneak the recaps into the latest. In the past few days alone, our country's been overwhelmed by powerful emotions, the sadness at the loss of Tim Conway and the joy we also felt for having had him in our lives, the weariness from the nonstop onslaught of news, most of which seems most unpleasant, the astonishment that it hasn't stopped by now or slowed down, the anxiety over rising prices and falling 401ks and failing farms at the hands of one man's fight to the finished trade war, The anger over a new Alabama law that outlaws abortion daring a conservative Supreme Court to overturn the law of the land for nearly a half century. The fear of a war in the Middle East as presidential provocations and claims of a threat that our allies say they just don't see. Shades of WMDs. Shades of Wag the Dog. Emotions run high as the law catches up with the President of the United States. Time to be strong and remember to breathe. It is unclear how this affects the price of tea in China, but we know prices are going up in the U.S. as this president escalates his trade war with China. Trump raised tariffs on Chinese goods from 10 to 25 percent. China raised tariffs on American goods from 15 to 40 percent. It's on. We know we'll pay more for meat, aluminum, toys, and other stuff babies need, high chairs and walkers and such. We'll pay more for furniture and lighting and auto parts, even for do-it-yourselfers. We'll pay more for fleece outerwear and backpacks and travel bags and dog collars and ski gloves and baseball mitts. There'll be higher prices for appliances and toilet paper, computers and computer parts, CDs and CD players, snakeskin, wooden shingles, clothing, mattress frames, and Christmas tree lights. We'll pay more for hardware, anvils and sledgehammers and saw blades. We'll pay more for art supplies and antiques, olives, and strawberry jam. The list goes on. We may pay 25% more thanks to Trump's higher tariffs on many of the things we have to buy from China because they aren't made or aren't available or aren't sufficient in quantity here. And it's not over. China has retaliated, raising tariffs on $60 billion worth of U.S. goods it buys. And Trump says he's prepared to expand his tariff attack even further by upping the tariffs on everything we buy from China. Even the president's chief economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, says both sides will suffer. What Kudlow didn't say was that the American consumers will suffer the most, losing jobs, in some cases because their employers went under. Prices go up by a lot in some cases. The stock market, your 401k, goes down and up and down again from all the uncertainty. Quoting a message from Boss Tweet, Just sit back and watch. In farm country, in Trump country, they are watching. In Congress, Republicans are watching because they hope to get reelected in Trump country. Some Republican lawmakers, steady yourself, have actually openly criticized Trump for his trade war. Say it isn't so. 
They are scrambling to work on a bailout program for farmers in Washington, but farmers don't want a bailout. They want a market where they can sell their crops. No other country so much wants or needs American soybeans than China. And even Iowa Republican Chuck Grassley points out that World Trade Organization rules make dumping excess crops on poor countries illegal and, based on past experience, doomed to failure. Even Mitch McConnell's pointing out that nobody wins a trade war unless there's a deal. And Republican lawmakers are pressing Trump to make a deal quickly. Trump says he'll reach a deal with China, quote, when the time is right. Just sit back and watch, he says. And despite the widespread false claim that Trump has improved the country's economy, that's not how most people see it. Overall, six in ten of us believe Trump tax changes benefited those in power more than they benefited everyone. A new study by the nonprofit news agency Center for Public Integrity bears out what the public believes, in this case, being completely true and correct, believing that this was a tax cut for the big and the powerful and the wealthy. More than 8 in 10 Democratic voters think so, according to a Washington Post-ABC News poll. But more importantly, two-thirds of independent voters think the Trump tax cut, the biggest in history for corporations and the rich, benefits those in power more. Even a third of Republicans agree and see it the same way. And although 42% of us think Trump's economic track record is reason to re-elect him, Nearly that many, 38%, think his health care record is reason to vote against him. The polling places will apparently be busy in November of next year. 80% of Republicans and 86% of Democrats say they do plan to vote. 30% of us say we expect to vote for Trump in 2020. An additional 14% say we might. The Trump economy will have a lot to do with the actual outcome, and the Trump trade war will have a lot to do with the economy. When farms fold and prices go up at Walmart in the heart of Trump country. But wait, there's more. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was established in the Obama years with invaluable help from Connecticut Senator Elizabeth Warren. Trump's bastardized version of that agency, now headed by Wall Street billionaire and Legos Batman producer Stephen Mnuchin, has a proposal, a new rule. The Trumpian CFPB thinks collection agencies ought to be able to call people as frequently as every day of the week and that collection agencies should be able to text you and email you as much as they want. With no regulation by the Trump administration, debt collection networks are now turning to social media, including WhatsApp, to reach out for the money as often as they like, which means those agencies can then save money by laying off a lot of debt collectors. Technology is already light years ahead of our laws. The Fair Debt Collection Practices Act was written in 1977, before cell phones were a thing. It's still the law, which means it's the Wild West out there. Although you still have the right to tell the debt collectors to stop contacting you, that's still the law, too. The Trump administration's also been keen on rolling back the rules on payday loan companies. It won't likely take long for the pain and the prices and the debt collection cruelty to be felt in Trump country. Although the job Secretary of the Interior doesn't sound as important as Secretary of State or Defense Secretary, it's every bit as important in its own way. It exists to protect our land, parks and wilderness, hiking trails and natural wonders, trees, plants, animals of all kinds, including birds and our natural resources, water and minerals. 
It exists mainly for conservation, which means it also exists to protect our environment, which of course affects the health of the entire planet. The Department of the Interior also exists to protect the people whose land this was before the arrival of Caucasian Christians, Alaskans, Hawaiians, and all the other remaining tribes of Native Americans. So it's a very important job. The U.S. has a relatively new Interior Secretary, David Bernhardt, a lobbyist and lawyer for the oil industry, which would like to get its hands on even more of our wilderness for oil wells and pipelines. Bernhardt was handpicked for the job by the current president and confirmed into the job by a Republican-led Senate. And he went right to work, meeting with the same people who were his clients when he was just a lobbyist. Now that he's Interior Secretary, those conversations take on a new and concerning meaning. Bernhardt's already under investigation by his department's own Solicitor General for the obvious conflicts of interest and apparent ethics violations. His predecessor had just resigned in an ethics scandal as the president continues his quest for the best people. Despite having enough time and opportunity to pursue the interest of big oil on the taxpayer's dime and defending himself against this welcome wagon of investigations, Bernhardt has also apparently used his three and a half months on the job to pursue his boss's passion, a national celebration centered around Donald Trump. While most people enjoy a spectacle, few so much as Trump, especially when it's all about him. And so, Independence Day will be a little different this year for millions of Americans steeped in tradition. Fireworks on the Mall, as it's been called, has been staged for more than a half century, attracting hundreds of thousands of Americans of all stripes to the National Mall in Washington, situated between the Lincoln Memorial, the White House, and the U.S. Capitol Building. They've been showing it on live TV since 1947, not long after the first television sets went on sale. Since 1981, it's been accompanied by a free concert on the West Lawn of the Capitol Dome, featuring popular stars and the National Symphony Orchestra. Those not in D.C. and those who can't or won't make their way through the crowds have come to count on the PBS fireworks show, complete with widescreen, high-definition color and Dolby surround sound. Since the nation's official July 4th celebration takes place on federal land, the annual event falls under the jurisdiction of that guy at the Interior Department who's under investigation. And his boss has given him some fairly specific marching orders as to how things will go this year on that once unifying holiday. The event gets a new name, a salute to America, and it moves from the Washington Monument to a park nearly a mile from the traditional spot and may feature two separate concert venues instead of a main stage at the mall. Presidents traditionally avoid appearing in that show for, among other reasons, to avoid making it political or about any one person. Besides, presidents usually have the best seat in the House on a White House balcony. But this year's plan includes a speech by Trump from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, which dovetails nicely with his ongoing campaign rallies in his incredibly funded re-election campaign. He's already been using fireworks at his outdoor campaign rallies. Aides to the president are telling reporters that Trump is much more excited about fixing a celebration that wasn't broken to make it at least a little bit about him than he is about any of his policies. He's been talking about something like this ever since that trip home on Air Force One in 2017 when he spoke excitedly to his staff about having something like what he'd just witnessed in France's Bastille Day celebration. He's talked about it ever since for the past two years. He'd originally called for it on July 4th, but practical and financial realities and opposition set in, so the parade he had in mind was pushed back to Veterans Day. 
Trump wanted tanks in the streets with military jets overhead and as many armed soldiers as the Pentagon could call up. He even specifically included vehicles that are his favorite tanks. He failed to consider the damage those tanks would do to the paved streets for the nation's greatest institutions and monuments. Most of all, he failed to consider the cost, and that's the case again this time. The White House says any increased cost this year will be paid by the government, meaning the taxpayers. Maybe that will doom his latest plans as well, or maybe he'll get his Trumpian celebration this time out of sheer determination. Few things have sparked as much anger among the resistance as Trump's takeover of America's holiday. It was February of this year as new Interior Secretary David Bernhardt was settling into the shaky footing of his new job that the boss tweeted, Hold the date. Major fireworks display, entertainment, and address by your favorite president, me. And isn't me what this is all about? What everything has been about since the fall of 2016? The double dog dare, as we were reminded in the classic movie A Christmas Story, is a dare you are not allowed to refuse. It's one thing to be dared to do something, but a double dog dare requires a response on your part. Those are the rules. The man who, at this uncomfortable moment in history, holds the title of president has laid down a double dog dare for Democrats. Light up or leave me alone. Put up or shut up. Impeach me and see where it gets you. I double dog dare you. Trump's banking on the assumption that Democrats will hurt themselves more than him ahead of the 2020 presidential election, that they will shoot themselves in the foot by focusing on, as he's putting it, investigating instead of investing. Trump believes an impeachment fight will fire up his base like never before, and that impeachment hearings launched by Democrats will be an irritant to voters, a majority of whom oppose those hearings right now. Perhaps because the election campaigns have already begun and because of their own pressing matters of home budgeting and health care, voters might have moved on from this. A Washington Post-ABC News poll shows only 37% of us favor right now the launch of impeachment hearings, while 56% of us oppose it. The number favoring impeachment is actually down over the past month, despite an increase in the president's frenetic behavior. The number of people opposed to impeachment, meanwhile, held steady, although it must be observed that Trump's approval rating has also fallen to a tied record low of 37%. House Democrats find themselves uncomfortably nestled between a rock that's made up of their duty to act as a check on the president, the apparent crimes committed, and the six in ten Democrats who favor impeachment, and a hard place, overall public opinion that includes the independents they'll need to win in 2020. Six in ten independents are against impeachment now, also more than last month. A CNN poll shows the number of people who think Democrats are over-investigating Trump is growing. Last month it was 38%. This month it's 44 The clock, meanwhile, is ticking. At the very least, history will want to know that some good Americans at least tried to stop a president who behaved more like a cruel king the reasons for investigating this president through the impeachment process are many, mostly obvious and worth repeating. The roadmaps are already spread out on the congressional table. The Mueller report outlined multiple examples of obstruction and multiple contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia. We know that when White House counsel Don McGahn refused Trump's orders to fire Bob Mueller, Trump turned to a private citizen to fire Mueller. Former campaign chair Corey Lewandowski, who didn't even work at the White House. Fortunately, Lewandowski also ignored the president's instructions. But attempted obstruction is still obstruction under the law. 
lying about it, as Trump has in the past week, simply compounds the crime. During my absence, we heard from more than 700 former federal prosecutors and Justice Department employees that were Trump not president, he would have been criminally indicted for obstruction of justice. History should note that all these signatures represent people inside the Justice Department who were calling out as completely false the claims and conclusions of the man who now heads the department they so faithfully served. William P. Barr was called out as a liar by hundreds of people from his own peer group. Criminal lying, says Nancy Pelosi, as other Democrats call for Barr's unlikely resignation. Documents and testimony from impeachment hearings would put increasing, perhaps overwhelming, pressure on the most devout Trump-publican lawmakers to take a second look. Watergate showed us that nothing disinfects as well as sunshine, that putting the most damaging evidence on TV does change hearts and minds, even the most stubborn hearts and minds. So how are Democrats handling this rock v. hard place scenario? Nancy Pelosi's been to this rodeo before. The House Speaker has neither stepped up the fight nor backed down from it. But she admits impeachment is as tempting as it is necessary and that Donald Trump has made it so. Trump, she says, is goading us to impeach him. It is, after all, a double-dog dare. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, who was against impeachment not two weeks ago, seems to favor it now. He says impeachment hearings would give Congress even greater access to executive branch data, all the way from evidence of obstruction to immigration data and data about climate change that the White House has so far refused to let Congress see. So Congress could also address the other concerns of American voters in addition to investigating a president who is not behaving as an innocent man. Just say no is not just the keep kids off drugs slogan when Nancy Reagan was the nation's first lady. It is also the apparent new motto of the Trump administration, which is now saying no openly to nearly everyone on everything. Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate have heard the word no quite a bit lately. It's not just no, it's a double-dog dare no. No to the unredacted Mueller report and its supporting documents. No now to testimony by Mueller himself. The man Trump tried to fire, the man he stonewalled by refusing to answer questions, is now being silenced by Trump, or at least that's what Trump is trying to do. No to anything that might crumble Trump's claims that the Mueller investigation had exonerated him. Hardly the behavior of an innocent man. No to more testimony from Donald Trump Jr., who appears to have told the same lies to Congress that now have Michael Cohen behind bars and who eagerly met with Russians in 2016 hungry for dirt on Hillary. No to seeing Trump's financial records, which Cohen says reveal bank fraud and insurance fraud and tax fraud. No to seeing his tax returns, even though that appears to be a violation of the law, a necessary component of a double-dog dare. The Treasury Secretary and the IRS Commissioner, both handpicked by Trump and behaving as such, are risking fines and even jail for standing by their president. No to any more White House or administration documents, says the new White House counsel, adding Trump's words, no do-overs. No to more testimony from Attorney General William Barr, who now also holds the title in contempt of Congress on everything from the Mueller report to Trump's taxes. No to calling former White House counsel Don McGahn to testify, even though McGahn no longer works for the president, and even though his name came up in the Mueller report 157 times. No to all the subpoenas to McGahn and Barr and even Mueller. As Nixon learned, saying no to subpoenas is grounds for impeachment. As Nixon learned, 
It doesn't even buy very much time at all. And there are other ways to buy time. Donald Trump Jr., to avoid a subpoena fight, has agreed to testify behind closed doors to a limited set of questions over a month from now. Jr. got this sweetheart deal from the Senate Intelligence Committee where Republican Chairman Richard Burr felt the need to hold Jr. to a subpoena and then took a lot of flack for it from his Republican colleagues. Jr. had already backed out of two previous commitments to answer questions, which is why Burr felt Jr. needed to be subpoenaed. The House Intelligence Committee, controlled by Democrats, won't likely be so accommodating. Trump Jr. is the campaign official who was most eager to get Hillary dirt from Russia. He also made the identical claims in congressional hearings that Michael Cohen had made and then admitted were lies. Cohen admitted that his all of his testimony a first time around for Congress were lies told, he says, as instructed by the White House. If Cohen was lying to Congress and his story matched Jr.'s at the time, then Jr. was lying too. So some lawmakers would like to know which. The month-long wait for Jr.'s new testimony in which he could still plead the Fifth Amendment among even the few limited questions he'll be asked. A rare yes in a sea of no's that might just be a very slow no. In case anyone's forgotten, Congress has its own powers to arrest and even jail people who ignore its subpoenas and that it still has a little two-person jail cell in the basement of the rotunda that hasn't been used since the post-Civil War days. Congress also has the more practical power to fine people up to, say, $25,000 a day for not complying with a congressional subpoena. That's pocket change to Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who's patient zero in this constitutional showdown. In his case, perhaps jail is the better option, once convicted. Congress has these powers and is apparently ready to use at least one of them, if not both. Lawmakers have just gotten a federal judge's permission to go forward with a lawsuit charging Trump with violating the Constitution's ban on payments from foreign governments as it concerns his D.C. hotel. That's the emoluments clause of the Constitution. They're also getting help from New York state lawmakers who voted to make Trump's tax records available to the Congress in Washington. Now, about 20 states have passed laws keeping candidates off the ballot if they've not released their tax returns, as every president since Richard Nixon has done. In the ironic words of Nixon himself, people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Although five articles of impeachment were considered against Nixon, he'd only made it up to three by the time he resigned in disgrace. How does Trump stand up to Nixon's three articles? Number one, obstruction of justice, check. Number two, abuse of power, check. And number three, contempt of Congress, check. This is all bad news for the Trump 2020 campaign. Also bad news? The New York Times expose of Trump's tax documents before his political career that show he's not the businessman he led voters to believe in the 2016 campaign. It's one of Trump's biggest and most successful lies. The Times was able to report that Trump lost well over a billion dollars in 10 years at a rate of more than $100 million a year, more losses than any other American taxpayer ever. The co-author of Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, is now demanding that that book either be taken out of print or recategorized as fiction. Co-author Tony Schwartz says if he could retitle the book, he'd name it Sociopath. And now that the lie has been exposed and the secret is out, why is Trump still, and more than ever, still fighting to keep his taxes hidden? What is he hiding, and why? 
Congress could guess that it's something about being compromised by something or someone, a hostile foreign government, perhaps. But it's better to know, and subpoenas can help them find out. Still, it's a chorus of no's from Trumpland. No, 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 and no to any request having to do with the Mueller investigation, and for that matter, about anything House Democrats request. No, as a way of dragging this out as long as possible or scaring Democrats into stopping. The art of the double-dog dare. No, hoping this will hurt Democrats in 2020. But yes, to executive privilege, which is a nice official-sounding way of saying no to whatever the White House decrees off-limits. Executive privilege, by the way, is a quirk of the Watergate era that is not found in the Constitution. It's only been around for 44 of our last 242 years, and legal scholars say it has shaky, untested legal legs. No is just part of the president's strategy for fighting the Mueller report and more than 20 separate congressional investigations. It's done, declared Trump. No redos, he proclaimed, as if this were the schoolyard. Case closed, declared Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. It's over, folks, declared Trump faithful Kellyanne Conway. Sarah Sanders chimed in. We consider this case to be closed. Democrats do not and will not. Speaker Pelosi says with all these no's, Trump has become self-impeachable, meaning he's doing all the work at driving himself out of office one way or another. Investigate the investigators is the other Trump land battle cry. Attorney General and part-time Trump defense lawyer Bill Barr has just assigned a U.S. attorney to investigate again the origins of the Russia investigation, bringing the number of current reinvestigations to four. Trump even wants an investigation of Joe Biden, investigations into his political opponents. The Trump 2020 campaign is now selling T-shirts that show Obama hiding in some bushes with a spyglass for spying on Trump, another Trump claim proven to be a lie. And the White House has ripped away press passes for dozens of legitimate journalists, including those who've worked the beat for years, even decades. One way to stop the spread of bad news is to stop the reporters. The Trump fight against truth and fact is stepped up as it pulls its weapons more tightly into a circle. The argument over Trump's tax returns is a prime example of a battle that can be fought in the courts, in Congress, or both. With impeachment hearings, Congress would officially have what's known as legislative purpose in demanding evidence and testimony about the president's words and deeds. In the tax fight, the latest argument from the White House is that it does not have to turn over Trump's tax returns because that would serve no legislative purpose. But impeachment hearings would provide precisely that. Articles of impeachment are legitimate legislation. And that's a power boost pill for congressional authority making it a super equal branch of government, should it so decide to take that pill. The Founding Fathers thought about giving the job of impeachment to the Supreme Court, but then thought better. And that brings us to taking these battles to court. First, while courts may side with Trump on some alleged matters of executive privilege, he's bound to lose most of his attempts to block transparency. The courts won't stand for blocking everything. There are concerns these executive privilege fights could end up in the U.S. Supreme Court, a venue as risky to Trump as it is to the opposition. Chief Justice John Roberts doesn't seem to be a lock for either side. There are questions also about Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. 
There is also much skepticism about the ability of courts to act quickly enough, fear that they might in fact help Trump stretch these cases and investigations through the next presidential election. At least one judge has tried to blow up that kind of thinking. After 10 years on this particular bench, Federal District Judge Amit P. Mehta is a jurist in a hurry. Last week, he announced he would zip through an entire case in just one day, the case in which Trump is trying to kill a House subpoena on his accounting firm, Mazars. The judge promised in his announcement that in just three working days, he would hear arguments from both sides in just one day. He kept his word. The judge was not just proving that these battles can move quickly through the court system. He was setting an example for other judges to follow. Still to come, Trump's efforts to block the subpoena of his bank, Capital One, as lawmakers try to figure out what is or isn't in his wallet. And perhaps to find out if he's financially compromised by any entity, a hostile foreign government, for example. The more the Trump administration drags its heels, the faster forward the courts are capable of pushing, provided they will continue to do so. Nearly 18 months remain between now and the 2020 election, but after what we have witnessed in Judge Mehta's courtroom, courts can turn things around inside of a week, provided they continue to do so. An air of bravado hangs over every double-dog dare, but bravado is not often well-founded in thought. Trying to drag out court cases could backfire on Trump. The more cases he loses, and he will lose most of them, the more it hurts his chances in the next election. Wearing their bravest faces, Donald J. Trump and William P. Barr have said they have no objection to congressional testimony by special counsel Robert S. Mueller III. Privately, reports the Washington Post, the president was still asking advisors if he ought to say no to Mueller's testimony. They advised him against it. He did it anyway, declaring it's done and tweeting, Bob Mueller should not testify. Politically, Democrats didn't want to impeach. But Trump, based on his own beliefs, is forcing them into it. He's forcing them into what is very likely the most effective check on a president who refuses to behave like one or even like an innocent man. It is, after all, a double-dog dare. And just a couple more and very important notes about the Mueller report as we await testimony from the man himself to clear up a few very important points. The report says it cannot establish beyond a reasonable doubt that the Trump campaign coordinated with Russia and its attack on the election system through hacking and a social media propaganda blitz. But Mueller's report does, according to a Fordham Law professor writing in the New York Times, provide enough evidence to say reasonable people are more likely to conclude there was collusion than to conclude there wasn't. The professor gives the special counsel low marks for how he wrote his report, emphasizing ten times the phrase beyond a reasonable doubt without addressing whether the preponderance of evidence would lead to that conclusion. And although preponderance of evidence is a recipe for failure for prosecutors, it's just what the doctor ordered for a congressional impeachment. Why did Bob Mueller do that? Why didn't he do what Ken Starr did in the Clinton case and frame his case more for the courtroom than the Congress? For all that Mueller found in this investigation, and it's a lot, there is a slew of unanswered questions and contrasting explanations of what his report does or does not mean For all the talk of exoneration, the Mueller report makes the case that Trump directed his campaign officials to contact Roger Stone about WikiLeaks, which published U.S. documents stolen by Russia. Just not beyond a reasonable doubt, despite the preponderance of evidence. Why did Mueller do that? Only Bob Mueller can answer these questions, and House Democrats are eager, nay anxious, 
to have him up to answer those questions and more. It is being asked, and it is fair to ask, why Robert Mueller hasn't stepped up and said more and sooner. Why has he mostly allowed Bill Barr to shape the public's perception of the hard work Mueller traded the past two years of his life for? Why would a prosecutor so respected by Republicans and Democrats, why would a Marine veteran and a patriot allow his work to be distorted and trampled in a rain shower of insults from the president and now even from some on the left? Why would such an obvious patriot not speak out at a time like this, or sooner even? Why won't he even defend himself? Why also did Mueller constrain his investigation so severely? There was so much evidence before him, but he kept his work inside some very narrow lines. Why? We won't know until he testifies for Congress, and even then we may not find out, but we can make some truly educated guesses in the meantime. Robert Mueller is a conservative man and very, very careful. This includes not speaking out of turn. He has testified before. He'd be willing to testify again, not eager, just willing. Right now, in his final days as a Justice Department employee, Mueller continues to lay low. Once he's dismissed, or once he resigns, he can say what he wants and answer subpoenas, even if the president invokes executive privilege. In his quiet, not spotlighty way, Mueller has spoken out about the misrepresentation of his report. He did that in a letter to William Barr, a letter Barr called Snitty. The letter indicates Mueller was, in fact, angry at the way his work was being portrayed and angry at the man who'd twisted it around. Mueller underscored that his people had gone to the trouble of writing one-page summaries at the top of each section specifically for immediate release to the public, not to be held back while Trump's attorney general falsely exonerates the president. While Barr was still holding it back, Mueller's letter called on the attorney general to release the entire redacted report. After receiving that letter, Barr would go on to join Trump in insulting the special counsel as Barr lied to Congress, saying he did not know how Mueller felt about the way the report had been portrayed, even though he'd already received that letter. Mueller doesn't care for the spotlight or the politics, so he tries to stay out of both. He is also a conservative and a careful prosecutor who, as outlined before, stuck to the criminality he was assigned to investigate and based his conclusions and his decisions not to conclude on that very strict interpretation of a provable case. He did not want his report to be attackable in any way, above all scrutiny, because he knew there'd be plenty of that. Mueller went with the safer, more conservative, beyond a reasonable doubt standard instead of the preponderance of evidence standard because that's what he does. And preponderance is what Congress does. It's not what other special counsels and special prosecutors have done, but this is the special counsel we have. Mueller clearly wanted the case he knew he could not make to be airtight for the judges and or lawmakers who will have to decide. And because he is who he is, my take is Mueller will speak when spoken to. Meanwhile, lawmakers are every bit as eager to get their hands on Mueller as they were his report, because it doesn't take a slam-dunk felony to impeach a president. By law, a preponderance of evidence will do nicely. And Robert Mueller gave us that. The negotiations between the House and Mueller are on. Lawmakers hope to hear his testimony, and perhaps the testimony of his investigators, within the next two weeks. 
Most recently, we learned that Trump had tried to get Don McGahn to issue a public statement saying what he eventually got William Barr to say instead, that the president had not engaged in criminal conduct in his attempts to rein in the Russia investigation. McGahn not only refused Trump's instructions, he strongly disagreed with that statement, and he got fired instead of Robert Mueller. Classic obstruction and witness tampering. And while McGahn is risking his law license by refusing to respond to a subpoena, answering only to the president, Trump continues to insult and attack Don McGahn. For however much longer McGahn will not answer those attacks, stay tuned. Former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort continues to remain loyal to Trump despite already long-serving what appears to be a life sentence. Now he's lost his license to practice law. Manafort has been disbarred over obstruction and conspiracy charges that may be filed against McGahn if he continues to remain silent for the man who keeps insulting him. Donald Trump says he never tried to fire Bob Mueller, but Trump lies a lot. By April 26th, according to the Washington Post, Trump had told more than 10,000 lies since taking his presidential oath. It took him over 600 days to get to 5,000. It took him only 226 days to double the number of false and misleading statements. The more rallies he stages, the more he lies. His old average of eight a day has soared to nearly two dozen per day. He has spewed 45 lies on Hannity's Fox News show, two dozen falsehoods in his recent NRA speech. He makes it look so easy. And that 10,000 number is expected to easily more than double between now and the next election day. I had just stepped away from this desk when the April numbers came out. We'll have a new count for May in just a couple of weeks. Trump is also prolific at stacking the circuit courts with conservative judges. He's appointed at least 38 so far, double the number appointed by Obama at this point in his presidency. It'll be three weeks tomorrow since we learned the president had been on the phone for an hour with Russia's Vladimir Putin. Putin had spoken English again in that chat, meaning neither man would need a pesky interpreter around. We learned that in that call, Putin and Trump talked about the Mueller report in their first conversation since the report had gone public. They agreed the Russia investigation was a hoax. Putin mused that what was supposed to have been a mountain turned out to be a mouse. Trump says Putin smiled, but there's really no way for anyone, including Trump, to know that since it was not a video call. In fact, the Mueller investigation had found solid proof that Russia interfered in the 2016 election, a finding neither leader bothered to mention in their latest eyebrow-raising phone call. We also know that Trump chose not to bring up the touchy subject in his latest conversation with President Putin, just as he has taken no action in more than two years to make sure Russia doesn't do it again. On Monday of this week, Trump welcomed Viktor Orban to the White House, Orban is the Prime Minister of Hungary who's been dismantling his country's democratic institutions and treating his country's immigrants with great cruelty. Welcomed, he was, after being shunned by both Barack Obama and George W. Bush. But the nation's immediate international fear is of a war in the Middle East, the tinderbox in which Trump's been making sparks. The provocations began even before Trump took office as he campaigned to pull the U.S. out of the six-nation nuclear deal with Iran. Once in office, he executed that threat, pulling the U.S. out of the deal that had kept Iran out of the nuclear arms race. Now, Iran is no angel and indeed is a key troublemaker in the Middle East, giving Trump reason to impose new sanctions on Iran 
after reimposing the ones that have been stricken as part of that nuclear deal. Trump had not only killed our environment with that hornet's nest, he gave the nest a good whack, angering the entire hive. Iran responded by announcing it was pulling out of some of the agreements it had made in that six-nation deal. Without the U.S. commitment to peace, the wheels were coming off. And now U.S. warships have rushed to the Middle East. More U.S. Patriot missiles have been deployed to the region. And the Pentagon's contingency plans include sending as many as 120,000 U.S. soldiers to the area, about the same number as in the U.S. force that invaded Iraq 16 years ago. Having such a plan means war plans are being drawn. The Trump State Department has ordered all non-emergency U.S. personnel out of Iraq, allegedly because of a threat of kidnappings and violence. Tensions have been escalated by Trump, whose administration also claims a spreading threat from Iran. But could this be Dick Cheney's weapons of mass destruction, deception all over again? This soon? Really? Our own experts say Iran, in truth, is behaving no differently than it has for years, with no real increase in aggression. Our allies say they see absolutely no sign of increased aggression by Iran and are frankly just as nervous about where this is headed. As the parents of the young men and women who would serve in that Middle East war for however long it may or may not last, worry. It is important to stress the point that this could all just be posturing and that what Trump says is often not what he actually does. Iran says it does not want war. It is also important to stress the stakes here are mighty high as the law closes in on Donald Trump. Tensions also seem to be on the rise between the U.S. and North Korea, despite the president's friendship with dictator Kim Jong-un. This past week, North Korea test launched two short-range missiles, prompting American troops in Japan to take cover, while the U.S. was test-launching long-range intercontinental ballistic missiles. Just before that, at the tumultuous NRA convention, Trump announced he was pulling the U.S. out of a United Nations nuclear arms deal that regulates weapons trade around the world. The NRA claimed the deal infringed on our Second Amendment rights, even though that international trade rule regulates tanks, aircraft, and warships. And Trump reportedly expressed fears that National Security Advisor John Bolton was trying to get him into a war in Venezuela where Russian troops are currently stationed in the midst of that country's turmoil. In the course of all that, Trump has also leveled threats against Cuba. Trump's new defense secretary comes not from the military ranks, but from the CEO chair at Boeing Aircraft, which is struggling after hundreds of deaths in its 737 MAX aircraft and which has fallen behind SpaceX in NASA's private sector space race. This president has once again stoked fears that he plans to stick around after the 2020 election, no matter the outcome. Using a hot-button word he knew would fire up his white nationalist base, Trump said he deserves reparations. Actually, it was the scandal-plagued Jerry Falwell Jr. who tweeted that. Trump merely retweeted it. Still, we are what we tweet. He said the Mueller investigation had stolen, misspelled with two L's, had stolen the first two years of his term. Trump suggested that two more years be tacked on to his first term to make up for that loss as reparations for his pain and suffering. Across America, the Red Hats smiled. Michael Cohen had warned us that Trump won't allow the constitutionally mandated peaceful transition of power when the time comes. 
Senate veteran Lindsey Graham has suggested not just a second term for Trump, but a prohibited third term. Nancy Pelosi warned that because of these prospects, Democrats don't just need to win in 2020. They need to win big. While a conservative Supreme Court, securely in place, several of the justices put there specifically to outlaw abortion, the court is being compelled to take a second look at its 1973 ruling that legalized abortion nationwide in the case known as Roe v. Wade. In Alabama, the mostly older white Republican men who serve in that state Senate ignored the three women in that chamber and voted to make abortion a felony to threaten doctors who perform them with 99 years in jail and punish women who cross state lines to get an abortion. The bill was signed into law last night by Alabama's Republican female governor. That law is a direct assault on Roe v. Wade for the exact purpose of a head-on collision at the Supreme Court in Washington that anti-abortion, anti-choice activists hope will get abortion outlawed across the land once and for all. Supreme Court observers say this conservative bench was actually hoping to chip away at abortion, not wipe it out in one felled swoop. To flaunt their position, the Alabama law doesn't even make exceptions for cases of rape or incest. More than a law, it's a call to arms on both sides of the abortion fight. Yet another Republican solution to yet another problem that statistically does not exist. Abortions, as with births, are at an all-time low. The current generation isn't even producing enough children to replace itself. The Alabama law lays bare the lie that Republican intentions have been to protect the safety of mothers. The Alabama trend lays bare that the intent all along has been to get abortion banned nationwide once and for all. About 20 states, all of them red states, have passed or are passing laws similar to Alabama's to make sure this gets to the Supreme Court. The Alabama law was one of three of its kind to appear just in the past month. The new Alabama law will likely never be enforced considering the court challenges and defeats, and it will remain on hold until the high court can take it up later this year at the earliest. The current Supreme Court session is nearly over, giving both sides all summer to fight this out. Again. Salon.com's Bob Seska has some thoughts on this. Bob? Thanks, Buzz. This is by far the most egregious anti-woman, anti-doctor law passed in the modern era, rocketing the entire state of Alabama backwards in time by nearly 50 years. The law is based on the purely subjective religious notion that personhood begins at conception, even though there's no legitimate evidence showing any such thing. And if personhood starts there, then aborting that person is murder, hence the 99-year prison term for performing an abortion without exceptions for rape or incest. By the way, the maximum sentence for rape in Alabama is also 99 years. Consequently, the sentence for a doctor who performs an abortion for a rape victim could receive the same sentence as the rapist. Science, as opposed to religion, tells us a lot. and Nearly all of what it tells us contradicts the theistic dogma of the Alabama legislature. The genetic component of the human life cycle begins long before conception. Sperm cells containing 23 chromosomes are created in the testicles and survive there for around 70 days. The entire sum of a woman's egg cells are present at her own birth and are one by one either fertilized or expelled during menstruation. If we're protecting the human life cycle from allegedly evil pregnant women, then we should protect sperm from being killed too, yes? There are around 100 million sperm per ejaculation. Each one contains half the genetic material for personhood. 
but I'm sure Republican men in Alabama would rather not criminalize masturbation or condom usage. I wonder why. Additionally, as Dr. Leah Torres, a practicing OBGYN who performs abortions, told me on my podcast the other day, pregnancy causes death. There are myriad complications that can occur throughout gestation, and that's especially so for young girls. Therefore, the Alabama legislature is forcing women to remain pregnant, even though it could kill them. And now, with the possibility of self-performed abortions on the table again, unsafe and illegal abortions will surely kill women too. Make no mistake here, the Alabama law is a ban on safe and professional abortions. The unsafe ones will resume again with harrowing consequences. In fact, I foresee an entire subculture of how-to videos popping up on YouTube showing women and girls how to perform their own abortions or how to acquire abortifacient drugs from disreputable sources overseas, not unlike the digital black market for performance-enhancing steroids and the like. The bro science online will be horrendous, and again, women will die trying, all because of lawmakers, mostly white, mostly male lawmakers, who falsely identify as pro-life. If indeed these bastards in Alabama were actually pro-life, and if they actually cared about reducing abortions, the availability of contraception would be universal. There wouldn't be any backlash against subsidized contraception or morning-after pills in the Affordable Care Act. Incidentally, the Hobby Lobby case struck down the contraception language in the ACA in defiance of the medical fact that the morning-after pills covered in that law don't induce abortions. The pills, in fact, prevent fertilization, not implantation. If the goal is to make abortions rare, then short of outright bans, you'd think the Republican Party platform would include access to contraception. Likewise, if reducing abortions were really the goal, then Republicans would also be pushing for free health care for pregnancies and neonatal care. Nah, the Republicans think that's evil, evil socialism. Indeed, if they'd rather allow more abortions than to support making pregnancy free, they're not as pro-life as they insist. When we eliminate these options for making abortion rare, then the only assumption we can make is that Republicans aren't interested in actually rarifying abortions. Then why all of the anti-choice laws across the red states? Well, in absence of wanting to prevent abortions, we can only assume that Republicans simply want to control women. They want to punish women for having a biological feature that men can never have, making men feel inferior. And they want to punish women who choose to terminate their own pregnancies. They want to strip women of sovereignty over their own bodies because the most misogynistic men among us believe women aren't bright enough or caring enough to make the right choices in life or in parenthood. The anti-woman, anti-choice resentment in some men emerges from viewing one too many grotesque photos of aborted fetuses. From there, the blame begins. Women did this to those babies, they think to themselves. It blinds men to the nuances of pregnancy and womanhood and drives them to take extreme measures such as the criminalization in Alabama. The science is lost under a cloud of outrage and vengeance, and nothing you or I say to them will shove them off their pious indignance. Abortion is murder, and women are the murderers, they believe. All of that said, there's a narrow chance, though, of something positive emerging from this madness. The Alabama law will be immediately challenged in court, and due to the existence of Roe, the law will likely be struck down. The appeals process will drag it into the Supreme Court, where there's a 5-4 to four conservative advantage, as we all know. However, the extremism of the law might be too much for the justices, even the conservative ones, to abide. 
And even if one of the five Republican appointees on the bench decide it's an overreach, the law will be struck down in a decision that will reinforce rather than repeal the right to choose abortion. This fight is far from over, and Roe, while endangered, isn't dead yet. But regardless of what happens, women and freedom-loving progressive men across the country need to use this. Use it as motivation to seize control of our government from the school board level on up to the presidency. The only way all of the trap laws and all of the misogyny gets rolled back is if the side of equality and the side of science grabs control and doesn't relent. Theocracy and all the worst parts of The Handmaid's Tale can't be allowed to flourish in the land of the free. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with Bob again on Tuesday. A week ago today, the president announced an expansion of the so-called conscience rule, to the point that he will now allow healthcare workers to refuse treatments to patients because those workers happen to object to abortion, sterilization, assisted suicide, gays, transgenders, and vaccinations. Under the new rule, everyone in healthcare, from the doctor to the receptionist, can refuse to serve those they find objectionable on so called moral or religious grounds. We also learned this past week that Google has given thousands of dollars in free advertising to a deceptive anti-abortion group backed by Catholic organizations. The group appears to offer abortions, but then tries to deter them once it snags a vulnerable patient. Somewhat surprisingly, things are headed the other way in Kansas, of all places. Long a haven for anti-abortion extremists, the protections for women are stronger now in Kansas, but only partly thanks to that blue wave late last year. This past Friday, the Kansas Supreme Court ruled that the Sunflower State's Constitution protects abortion rights. That ruling will stand no matter what the U.S. Supreme Court decides. The ruling read that Kansans have, quote, the ability to control one's own body and to exercise self-determination. This right allows a woman to make her own decisions regarding her body, health, and family, decisions that can include whether to continue a pregnancy, end quote from the ruling. Let me repeat, Kansas. After a decades-long battle, after the arrest of literally thousands of protesters in Kansas, the winds across the prairie have shifted. New York and Vermont have also implemented new protections for women, and Nevada is almost there. It was the afternoon after the release of my last report that a federal judge blocked the Trump administration from imposing new anti-abortion restrictions on family planning funds aimed at 4 million low-income women. A court had struck down one of the administration's new rules. Money had already been cut off to agencies that perform abortions, now jammed up with an injunction, this new Trumpian rule would cut off money to agencies that referred patients to abortion clinics. It's another effort to cripple Planned Parenthood, which would have been hit the hardest by this rule. Thanks to a court, that rule is now on hold in an administration that claims every life is precious. Just this week, the Trump Justice Department ruled that the Food and Drug Administration has no jurisdiction over drugs used by states to kill death penalty prisoners. The ruling frees states to buy their drugs from other countries. During my absence, I noted that Trump had pardoned Michael Bahena, the former Army lieutenant who did five years in prison for the murder of an Iraqi prisoner. 
Bahana is now a free man, no longer facing 20 years behind bars. In New York State and a handful of others, the law now requires that if you have both a kid and a gun in your house, you have to lock up the gun. In 2019, so far, there have been well over five dozen accidental shootings by children that have resulted in death or injury. The once powerful National Rifle Association, meanwhile, is still gasping for air as the coverage of its demise continues. The factors that have led to this crumbling are multifold. A wave of mass shootings under laws freely written by the NRA itself. Contributions are down, and that's not the half of what's clogging the NRA's financial arteries. The withering NRA will not be able to afford anything close to the $30 million it donated to Trump's 2016 campaign as the organization tries to help him get reelected in 2020. He needs them as much as they need him. Stop the internal fighting, Trump tweeted to the NRA as he ordered it to, quote, get back to work fast. Trump was referring to the ugly power struggle that led to the ouster of NRA President Oliver North, now infamous all over again. The unlucky winner of that power struggle is the NRA's aging executive, Wayne LaPierre. He's unlucky because in bouncing Oliver North, LaPierre has estranged the Oklahoma ad agency that came up with the late Charlton Heston's From My Cold Dead Hands line and all the other NRA taglines over the years. And it all goes back to that aforementioned money problem. The ad agency, Oliver North, and even LaPierre have made tons of money. LaPierre got nearly $300,000 worth of nice suits, thanks to the NRA. North got millions for a no-show TV show on the NRA's now-defunct TV network. It appears that ostracized rock musician and gun advocate Ted Nugent even got some dough. As it turns out, some of that money appears to have been siphoned from the NRA's tax-exempt foundation to NRA Incorporated, and that's very illegal. Tax officials, especially in New York State, where the NRA is registered, have questions. Lots of questions. Questions remain about the FBI investigation into whether the NRA funneled money from Russia into the Trump campaign since the NRA has had close ties to both. A trio of Senate Democrats are now asking the NRA to turn over all documents concerning the gun lobby's financial health. The walls are rumbling at NRA headquarters, and it's not coming from the indoor firing range. But the NRA still does what it can, including backing a bill to expand Florida's guns in school law from just certain staff members to staff and teachers. A number of states already allow teachers to pack heat, but this was Florida, the NRA's favorite test lab for gun legislation. The state capital of Tallahassee is like home to NRA lobbyists. A Florida commission investigating the high school massacre in Parkland last year says it could have been less deadly if more of the staff had been armed. And if a teacher does feel threatened, they do also have the NRA's stand-your-ground defense in Florida. Parkland survivor Emma Gonzalez told CBS's 60 Minutes last year that arming teachers is, quote, stupid. The vast majority of teachers think so. Well over one-third of the school boards in Florida are opting out of this, with a majority of Floridians against arming teachers. But with Republicans in control of Florida state government, the laws go in a different direction. And in the opposite corner of the mainland U.S., a Washington state representative, Matt Shea, and others urged their audience to arm themselves for the civil war that's looming. 
Shea was speaking at a religious compound called God and Country in a remote part of the northeast corner of his state last year. The Guardian has the audio recording of Shea's call to arms and the conspiracy theory shared by this state representative, this elected official. Liberty, he said on that tape, must be kept by force. With prompting from the current Democratic favorite to stand against Trump in 2020, the president found himself again trying to defend his comments that there were very fine people on both sides in the white nationalist rally in Charlottesville two years ago that left a counter-protester dead. After again being called out on that remark by Joe Biden, Trump did what he does. He took the bait and he dug in. Trump responded that he wasn't talking about the white nationalists, but referring instead to those who'd marched to oppose the removal of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, a subtle difference at best. Despite being forced into giving it lip service, Trump has repeatedly played down the threat of white nationalism. After the slaughter in a New Zealand mosque, a reporter asked Trump if he thought white nationalists were a growing threat around the world. I don't really, answered Trump, calling them a small group of people. It was Trump who'd proposed and pushed hard for a Muslim ban and threatened to close mosques in the U.S., adding, I think Islam hates us. Trump has, meanwhile, heaped praise on Robert E. Lee, an enemy of the United States and ultimately a loser, while calling FBI investigators traitors as hate crimes and mosque attacks and synagogue attacks and racist hand gestures are on the rise. Shoot them, shouted someone in the crowd as Trump goosed the Red Hats in Panama City Beach, Florida a week ago last night. Shoot them was a Red Hats response to Trump's question about refugees and immigrants. How do you stop these people, he asked. The audience cheered. The people in the USA hats behind Trump clapped and laughed. Trump laughed too. Only in the panhandle you can get away with that statement. His people laughed again. What is funnier, after all, than the irony of poor people fleeing violence to be shot on their arrival in the land of the free? A leader would shut down and scold such a lawless act of cruelty. Trump just rolled with it. Instead, he complained that the U.S. military isn't allowed to shoot migrants on sight as he sends more troops to the border, more than 5,000 of them now, at a new total cost of over $22 million a year. Some of those troops are armed. Some of them aren't. On a recent trip to the border, Trump said the troops could get a little tough, but added everybody would go crazy if they did. And while vigilante militias roam our southern border, loyal to a president who's frustrated that his army is not allowed to shoot. The president has, since we last spoke, ordered huge changes to the country's asylum policies, as they have stood since World War II, U.S. asylum officers have been ordered to take a more aggressive stance with those who claim they were persecuted in their home country. While the government sits on over $200 million in bond money posted by immigrants, it plans to charge refugees a fee, even if they're fleeing poverty as well as violence. And work permits will be denied to those who've crossed the border without papers, a fee for people without money and no chance for them to work. Judging from the immigration numbers, Trump's ultra-tough immigration policy is also not working. Remembering Tim Conway, ways to get rid of Grandpa, and things that make us say wow in the final segment after this. 
by all means, use the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com to get your own personal copy of the Mueller Report and all the other great books written about our times. And please do all your shopping there year-round at home, school, and work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. Just go to buzzburbank.com and click on the Amazon logo. You'll land on your usual Amazon page, which you can then bookmark to replace your old bookmark. Once you've done that, I got a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really does help power this free weekly report. On your desktop browser, that Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. If you choose not to use my Amazon link, then please support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal Donate button. Thank you for all of those things and for spreading the word about this effort. A million species. That's not how many plants and animals. That's the number of kinds of plants and animals expected to be wiped from this planet in the coming days, weeks, and years. Seven co-authors from universities around the world have carefully calculated extinction rates and find more kinds of life under threat than at any other time in human history. One million species, they say, are on the verge of extinction, and that this, along with losses in reliable food and water, is a serious threat to the health of humans. We depend on these other life forms for our own survival, and they're dying off, likely to vanish forever from this planet. These seven authors are part of a larger group, including nearly 150 contributors from 50 nations over a three-year span. They used figures from an even bigger group that includes 132 nations. And they all agree that man-made climate change presents an urgent threat to all life on Earth. And then a retired naval officer took a miniature submarine to the deepest spot of the deepest ocean, 36,000 feet below sea level, in the Pacific Ocean's Mariana Trench. He boldly went where no person has been before. He saw sea life no person has ever seen, and the photos he took may help fill in remaining questions about the sequence of evolution. He also saw one of the greatest threats to ocean life, even in a spot as remote as that. A voyage to the very bottom of the sea revealed a discarded plastic bag where no man had been before. A new report by the World Resources Institute shows that the planet lost nearly 30 million acres of rainforest just last year, the fourth deadliest year on record for rainforest trees. We lost an area of old growth about the size of Belgium, most of it in the Amazon rainforest. Time-lapse images of the loss are disturbing. Some trees were lost to fire, but most were cleared by heavy equipment to make room for crops and cows. And that brings us to the apparently unstoppable Impossible Burger from Burger King. It's actually from a company called Impossible Meats, which has invented a no-meat, all-vegetable-protein hamburger that has the cattle industry worried. After a booming test run in St. Louis, Burger King says it's rolling out its Impossible Burger across the country. It's a healthier, more environmentally friendly burger that's fooling the vast majority of people in side-by-side -side taste tests against real beef burgers. The end of the deadly AIDS plague is near, thanks to a new study that's found drugs that prevent the transmission of the human immunodeficiency virus. Antiviral drugs suppress HIV to the point that it's too weak to be transferred from one person to another. It means if everyone with HIV got the shots, AIDS would die instead of its victims. 
Funeral practices are changing all over the Western world. Hawaiian shirt funerals are a thing. Hot dog carts at funerals are a thing. In Britain, Eric Idle's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life has replaced Frank Sinatra's My Way as the number one song on the funeral song charts. Yes, they have such a thing. More than half of us are being cremated instead of buried, but there's a more eco-friendly way to go. In Washington State, they've just legalized the transformation of human remains into garden compost for growing flowers, trees, and vegetables. Cremation requires nearly 30 gallons of fuel for just one body and sends about 40 pounds of carbon into the air. In Washington State, there's now the option of alkaline hydrolysis, which is basically the old mobster supervillain trick of using lye to turn a dead body into liquid. If that sounds disgusting, look into the whole process of embalming sometime. Less environmentally friendly, in fact, less friendly, period, is the method of a western Pennsylvania man whose mother was kicking him out of the house. It was last September when she made her 33-year-old son move out. Police have now charged Thomas Wells with abuse of a corpse and criminal mischief after, as revenge on his mom, flushed his grandparents' ashes down the toilet. Police say mom told him he's threatened to do the same thing with hers. At least five celebrities have died in the past two weeks. The most recent is the passing of Tim Conway, who won four Emmys as the MVP of the Carol Burnett Show Ensemble. The deadpan but side-splittingly funny Conway credited his success to his Midwestern roots and inspiration from comic actor Don Knotts. He got his real start on the Steve Allen Show and moved on to McHale's Navy, the Carol Burnett Show, and SpongeBob SquarePants with a few movies and other TV gigs along the way. We also lost a movie star from the 50s and 60s, Doris Day, who was in on the joke as frequent co-star Rock Hudson hid his homosexuality with a Playboy image. Day had just celebrated her 97th birthday when she passed from pneumonia. She once confessed she was a far cry from the squeaky clean girl-next-door type she portrayed in the movies. She was, however, a fierce animal activist. Peter Mayhew, who played Chewbacca in the Star Wars movies, died at age 74. The big man died in his big home state of Texas. I loved him, said Harrison Ford. John Singleton, who directed the powerful Oscar-nominated film Boys in the Hood, who was the first African-American director nominated for Best Director, died at Cedars-Sinai in L.A. at age 51 from a stroke induced by his chronic high blood pressure. Singleton started shooting his amazing Boys in the Hood at age 22. And actress Peggy Lipton, who launched a thousand crushes on the formulaic 70s hippie cop show Mod Squad and later starred on Twin Peaks, has died at 72. Lipton got four Emmy nominations and a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress based on her work on the Mod Squad. Abigail Disney, a great niece of the late Walt Disney, is disgusted that current Disney CEO Bob Iger makes $66 million while his employees struggle. She says 15 bucks an hour is not a living wage in Anaheim, California, the home of Disneyland, where some Disney workers actually live in their cars. Both Democratic candidates Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders hope to address that. Each backs a plan that would levy heavier taxes on the very well-to-do. Sanders, on the campaign trail, suggested Disney use its Avengers profits to give the workers raises. Avengers Endgame is once again the week's number one movie for North America. That's three weeks running now, pulling in another $63 million this week just on this part of the globe. Worldwide, it's averaged more than $2 billion. 
The U.S. and Canada made the latest Pokemon movie a big second-place winner with a $58 million take. But how much do you know about The Hustle, The Intruder, or Breakthrough, also in the top five? For previews and all your movie theater needs, please click through the Fandango logo on my webpage at buzzburbank.com. It's back to the drawing board for something at Playland's Castaway Cove Carnival in Ocean City, New Jersey. During a nighttime test run, two crash dummies were hurled into the roof of a neighboring hotel after being strapped into the park's new Gale Force roller coaster with speeds of up to 64 miles an hour. Park management tells the local paper there's nothing to see here. Quoting a spokesperson, this was a mishap with the dummy itself, not with the ride in any way. There is nothing more to add. The Consumer Technology Association righted a wrong this week when it reinstated an award that was given and then taken away. The award was for a product on display in the adult section of this year's Consumer Electronics Show in Arlington, Virginia. It's a robotic sex toy for women, the Ose Robotic Massager by the Laura DiCarlo Company. There is a person who goes by that name, and she was outraged her creation had been rejected a year after a sex robot for men was launched on that same trade floor. The Technology Association reiterated its sincere apology for snatching away the award four months ago when the DiCarlo company was accused of not keeping with the trade show's image. In South Dakota, a man is accused of stealing $500 worth of sex toys, not from a store, from a house, a couple's house, a Mr. and Mrs. Fuchs in Tyndall, South Dakota, near the Nebraska border. Sex toys were found at the suspect's house, providing police with hard evidence. The couple was able to catch the burglar thanks to the motion-activated camera they had installed in their bedroom. Don't ask. In western Pennsylvania, police have identified the two men who stole panties from a Victoria's Secret store last month, $21,000 worth, about 2,000 pairs of panties. They got cover from an 18-year-old woman and a juvenile they'd used as a lookout. In their possession, police also found Victoria's Secret panties stolen from a store in Bethesda, Maryland. Police caught up with the panty raid gang during a drug raid in Fairfax, Virginia. Don't ask. And in Pennsylvania, eastern side this time, police are looking for the two men and a woman caught on video breaking into a hospital and stealing nearly a half million dollars worth of colonoscopy instruments. Don't ask. Australian police are looking for the man who'd been caught on video breaking into stores at a big shopping center, including a jewelry store and an electronics store. The man fled on foot and has not been identified. The description from the security video indicates it's someone wearing a Donald Trump mask. Or in Connecticut, Jason Stiber hired a lawyer when police cited him for driving while talking on his hash browns. Cyber says the officers mistook the hash brown potatoes in a white paper sleeve as a cell phone as he held it, them, in front of his mouth while driving to work over a year ago. It would have been cheaper just to pay the ticket, but Jason was willing to spend more to keep this ugly incident off his record. He wasn't going down over an order of fast food hash browns. Jason got his day in court and was found not guilty of his distracted driving charge. It was, quoting his lawyer, the case of the century. From the home office in Florida, a routine traffic stop in Charlotte County took some delightfully interesting turns. 
It was a little after 3 a.m. when deputies pulled over a pickup driven by a 22-year-old man that had allegedly sailed through a stop sign. The driver explained that he and his lady friend had just come from under the overpass where they'd been collecting snakes and frogs. Why? What do you do at 3 a.m. where you live? The officer asked to see whatever other wildlife they had on him to make sure that none were protected creatures. The woman pulled 42 striped mud turtles out of her backpack along with one softshell turtle. The officer called in Fish and Wildlife and asked the woman if she was packing anything else. That is when she reached into her yoga pants and pulled out an alligator about a foot long. Don't ask. In Lewiston, Maine, police say a man used his dad as the getaway driver in a recent bank robbery by not telling dad why he had been asked to wait outside the bank with the engine running. The son faces a felony for allegedly robbing the bank of $620. The dad has been released as an unwitting accomplice. And finally, it wasn't your average orchestra playing that first Sunday night in May at Boston Symphony Hall. It was the Handel and Hayden Society, America's oldest performing arts group, founded in 1815. And it had just finished its rendition of Mozart's Masonic Funeral before a cultured and dignified crowd. It was a breathtaking moment. The crowd was hushed, except for a young child who couldn't help but blurt out the word, Wow. In that dramatic moment, the crowd burst into laughter and then applause for the youngster who got it. That actually brought me to tears, said one performer. The Handel and Hayden Society immediately went looking for the child, not to scold them, but to invite them to see the show again on the house, meet the conductor, and be the guest of honor. It's a reminder that nothing does for us what music can do. And it's a reminder that it's not the number of moments we have, but the number of moments that make us say wow. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for shopping my sponsors and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.